And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. Our guest today is Wilson Geisler. Wilson is a veteran missionary who currently serves as the director of global research at the IMB. I've known Wilson for more than a decade. I've stayed in his home in Asia and consider him a friend and a gifted thinker and leader. And I really look forward to this conversation today. Wilson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Really uh, glad to be here. I'm just, I'm looking forward to, to jumping into the topic, man. We're going to be talking about, about research and a lot of things around that. But before we dive into that, I would love for the audience just to, to hear a little bit about your background, maybe briefly hear your testimony, how you came to this role and assignment. Any chance I get to talk about uh, how the Lord saved me, I'm going to jump on that. So the Lord actually saved me out of atheism when I was 30, which is 24 years ago at an SBC plant, church plant in Northwest Austin, Texas. That's probably a much longer story than we have time for, but just a lot of God's grace at work and just the transformation that the Lord did in my life after that and just digging into the word and finding that not only that I could understand the word, I could obey it and I wanted to obey it and how all that works together is is awesome. I have a civil structural engineering background before that. So I actually have a bachelor's and a master's in, uh, in engineering and worked for an engineer as an engineer for many years. I owned a software company for a number of years in the 90s. After I came to faith, I started at Southwestern, so a sister seminary. The church we got saved in, which is Lake, not, it's, they don't have the same name anymore, but Lake Line Church in Austin, Texas, were, like I said, was a plant. They were only about nine months old when I came to faith and then had the privilege of leading my wife to faith just a few months later and then our kids. But basically, Brian Lighty, the pastor there, had decided that, or the Lord really told him, within five years, they would adopt a UUPG and engage it within five years of the plant. And so... Right around year, I think it is four, three or four, contacted IMB, somebody from, from IMB, Bruce Carlton, actually. If you guys know Bruce at OBU now. He came out and, and helped Lake Line adopt a people group in Asia, and we started going. And uh, I started going on those trips. Uh, I was the discipleship and missions pastor at the time, basically bivocational, working as an engineer and doing that. And went on those trips, and basically the Lord got a hold of me on the second trip to this particular place where the IMB had never had anyone previously uh, and said, somebody's got to be there really to disciple and engage for long-term sustainability. And so my wife and I started the process with IMB in 2005, and we went overseas in 2006 and uh, served in a couple of different regions in the world, Asia, and also in uh, Middle Eastern uh, areas. So. And for the last two and a half years, I have been in the director of global research role here. At, uh, at IMB in Richmond. So loving that. Thanks for sharing some of that background. Obviously, you're serving as the director. So I want to hear you articulate why is research and keeping track of data on the field? Why is that important for an organization like the IMB? I can think of at least three reasons right off the bat very quickly. First, IMB is accountable to our trustees and our Southern Baptist constituents. 
right? So since the churches, Southern Baptist churches have sent these missionaries, we really have to report their efforts and any results that come from that, from the field. Second, I would say that IMB wants Southern Baptists to glorify God and rejoice and celebrate what he's doing across the globe among so many different people, groups, and places. And so I think that's that's key too, right? We want to boast in the Lord like Paul talks about as well. And then finally, IMB wants to report where the gospel has not gone yet and where many people are entering into Christless eternity. So by actually seeing where we are and other similar agencies are, it gives us a picture to where it's not or where it's maybe fading away from particular generations uh, or whatever. And so we want to do that basically so Southern Baptists can, can continue to faithfully go, pray, basically send, give as they have since 1845. I would say just one other thing on this, and that is there's really two types of data we collect because I think that's a key to this whole important thing, importance of it. The first type is faithfulness data. Uh, these are just two simple terms that we use. There's another way to look at these as well, but I'll, I'll give you faithfulness and fruitfulness, but sometimes they're called controllable and uncontrollable, right? And so faithfulness data is data that we might collect about missionary activities done by, say, our personnel and their close partners that are actually within the sphere of control of the individual, uh, such as sharing the gospel, discipling somebody, training pastors uh, and leaders, uh, identifying people groups, engaging them. Those things are activities for which every believer right, is really responsible. And so we're collecting that data so that we can hold each other accountable, so that we can spur one another on to those tasks that God has assigned basically to us and to really every follower of Christ. And the other type, like I mentioned, is fruitfulness data. And that is really collected, fruitfulness data is collected about what God is doing among peoples and places of the earth through those faithfulness activities, but they are really out of the realm of control. They're in the control of God, right? But not in the control of the individual. That is things like somebody saying yes to Jesus, somebody being willing to actually be baptized, take that step of obedience, to be baptized. There's a teaching element there, a training element there, but the inward desire right that comes from the lord even the planting of churches themselves so that church those that new church number because it's composed of disciples and the making of disciples the growth of that's really caused by the lord those are fruitfulness metrics so like in mark 4 26 to 29 we see that god right providentially causes kingdom growth right so that whole parable points that god causes the growth that's my estimation the key point there so while everybody has a responsibility to be faithful that fruitful outcome from that obedience is caused by God. And so IMB collects that data so we can glorify God ultimately boasting in what the Lord has done. So that's my take on that. I think that gives us kind of a good understanding of kind of how and why. Maybe want to dive a little bit deeper now and, you know, ask us if you can kind of open the hood for us a little bit and tell us kind of how you count and report the number of, like you mentioned, gospel shares, new believers, new churches, Briefly, what is the process that kind of produces that report? And you're right. We probably don't peel back the hood enough, right? So, but this is good. So basically throughout the year, our team leaders, IMB team leaders, at least the way it's currently done, it's been done this way probably at least 15 years. Uh, but IMB team leaders, they enter in their own personal efforts, the efforts of their team members and the efforts of their close Baptist partners, as well as any resulting fruit from that, into IMB proprietary software that we have that tracks and maintains that data. 
that fuels a database we have called CPPI, Church Planting Progress Indicators, and that fuels peoplegroups.org. So that real-time or close to real-time monthly data on how many people groups are engaged with the gospel, that kind of thing. So that faithfulness and that fruitfulness data get entered on a people group by people group basis into the software system. And so our teams often they'll have, you know, cause there's a lot of not so tech savvy national partners. There's a lot of paper forms many times. So there's different paper recorded metrics, you know, like we would use in, in the not too distant past, right. To, to track things, you know, church roles and all that kind of stuff. Right. So there's paper forms, but there's also other software that allows us to track precise locations, for example, of groups and churches, as well as those groups and churches alignment with the BFNM 2000, and also where they are in that spectrum of working towards those 12 characteristics that IMB talks about of healthy church that are found in the foundations document. So when all that data comes in, basically we've got a global research team. So every single one of our eight affinities have a research team and those affinity researchers and their teams, they actually take all these team reports, they verify them, double check them, send them on to Richmond. And we have an entire team here in Richmond that runs all of that once it's entered into this software to check for anomalies, to check for things that, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Why, why is this being reported? As part of the reporting, everybody has to put notes in. So we're able to go in and, and see why did somebody say this about this happening? And we can follow up this whole process. You know, like I said, they, they enter these types of things monthly. We do an annual report, but we usually start that annual process like in September or October, all of that kind of flows through with us checking things. The final kind of data cut happens sometime. We're getting close to it now in January. And then that moves towards that that annual report being put out. Uh, and we review that stuff for completeness before it goes out. Thank you for sharing some of the details that goes into the process. I think that's really helpful. I think for me, the most encouraging piece is to hear that all the data is locally sourced, essentially, that, that it's, it's, it's folks that are there on the ground. And they're not just there on the ground for a week or two trying to figure out and trying to count. These are people who live in these locations. And so they're there week in and week out. And so the things that they're seeing, the things that they're reporting are things that they're able to see with, with their own eyes, which I think is helpful to hear. I wanted to, to jump a little bit to the 2020 report. You know, there's been some dialogue and discussion about the 2020 report. I think this is just kind of par for the course in many ways. Every year when you try to account and report what God is doing across the globe, that's a tall order and a tall task, right? And so there's always going to be some sort of discussion and dialogue about that. But for the, the 2020 port, uh, report in particular, then the number I think was 18,380 churches planted globally. But it, it seemed like a lot of that, the, the bulk of that by far was happening in one particular area of the globe in South Asia. And so I would love to hear you address a number of questions, not not trick questions, but questions that I've heard from pastors and students that I interact with. Any insights or clarifications that you could provide about these numbers? You know, what is it that you think in particular South Asia might be doing uniquely that's accounting for the, the bulk of these churches that are planting? Are they using a different strategy? Uh, are they counting differently? Do they lean more on national partners and others than maybe some of the other affinities? So yeah, maybe just talk us through some of that related to the 2020 report. Let me just first say that, uh, you know, for those listeners that are not aware, I mean, previously, before I stepped into this role, our annual statistical report 
was a trustee only document. One of the things I stepped in and really advocated for, which our leadership has has gone for, is that we release this annual report publicly. And that's our intention going forward as well. And so you're right. Because of that, there's been a lot of swirl, as it were, around these numbers. So I'm really grateful to actually be able to have this chance to kind of talk through and clarify some of them, especially, you know, talk about some of those comparisons like you're talking about that have been made between affinities. So I think the first place for me to start with this actually is a bit of a caution when it comes to reading the ASR, because it really does, it's going to play in, I think, to all the rest of the discussion we have. So we need to be careful not to read into the annual report things that it doesn't necessarily say. Let me give a few examples. One, for example, for security reasons, in each affinity, the number of personnel and close partners, Baptist partners who provide the data for the report is not provided. So this means it's always going to be unclear about how many individual report givers contributed to a particular affinity's numbers. So like in some of our fields, our teams have many, many close partners providentially or for whatever reason, but in other fields, there's like no believers or just even a few believers, let alone any partners to share the work. So that, that means like in some places, providing an opportunity to hear the gospel is the work of one or two, and in others, it could be a hundred or a thousand people sharing the gospel weekly, right? As opposed to one or two. So that that's one, I think, care that should be taken. And the other is we also do not give uh, intentionally a reference, at least in the report, to the amount of time spent laboring among a particular people group. So some teams labor faithfully for a decade and see one person come to saving faith. Again, that's that fruitfulness. Other teams see multiple people say yes in year one of getting to the field. Some teams can stay in countries for years, discipling pastors and leaders. So you have this giant equipped force of churches all working together. And then others are forced to leave after a short time, you know, by a hostile government or persecution or health issues. And so some of our teams see fruit in terms of local church ownership in the Great Commission to such a way that they transition to a peer relationship, at which point we begin, we stop actually reporting those partners' efforts. So like in one given year, we could be reporting. And in the next given year, they exit the partnership. So you see a multitude of, say, gospel shares and churches in one year, and the next year minimal because that person, that team has gone to work with a UUPG that has no believers. Right. So they went from being in this, you know, focused on a very, you know, right now fruitful group, but that's actually moved into a new stage of ministry where there's autonomy and ownership where we don't report. And then they move to the cutting edge of lostness. Right. So that caution, I would just say, means that year by year comparisons, for example, which I've seen some of that already just in the two years, year by year comparisons of faithfulness and the resulting fruitfulness, even within the same affinity we should be avoiding those to some degree because the circumstances behind that are really varied and complex. So with that in mind, let's talk through some of that of what you're talking about. So a few things to keep in mind on that, especially when it comes to the church number, the reporting of churches in the annual statistical report, when it says that it's a new church or a church, it's a little bit different than I think maybe we think of church in the United States to some degree. What it means again, because there's no reference to time, is that there's a group that has become a church because we have a group number also right and so a group may have started many years earlier but through discipleship and effort of missionaries and their partners it has matured and been discipled to a church in that particular year 
So all that means is it crossed a threshold for a minimum baseline of calling something a church, not necessarily that it started, if you know what I mean, that year. So there's been a lot of confusion about like the starting. In today's uncertain world, there's an urgent need for competent biblical counselors who can offer hope and help through the whole counsel of God's word. Are you called to be a counselor? A degree in biblical counseling from Southern Seminary is designed to equip students with a biblical foundation and professional skills needed to help others navigate the struggles and challenges of everyday life. This degree prepares graduates to minister to individuals, couples, and families in church, nonprofit, or missional settings. To learn more about Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, and doctoral degrees available through the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary, go to sbts.edu slash bgs, or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. There you'll learn how podcast listeners can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. I was going to ask, so I guess the... One of the key indicators there would, would likely be the, the transition from a group to a church may be some sort of qualified leadership. There could be other issues maybe connected to that, but it seems like maybe it was a group that was meeting and studying God's Word together, but maybe didn't have a qualified leader. Maybe this next year they, they now have a qualified trained leader, so they're able to start actually meeting as a church, and there's a variety of other factors related to that maybe. And so I think a key there is there's a baseline minimum right, in IMB terms, for something to move from a group to a church. And that really is that there's a group of baptized believers that meet the definition of church, particularly that first paragraph referring to local church in the BF&M 2000. So Baptist Faith Message 2000, which I'm not going to read that for clarity here, but you can go and read it for yourself. But the things listed in that basically are autonomy, local, consisting of baptized believers, identification by covenant, so regenerate membership, observing the Lord's Supper and baptism, democratic or working towards it. Are all of our SPC churches democratic? Well, hopefully they're working toward it. I don't know. Each member growing, responsible, and accountable to Christ as Lord with leaders, right, including male pastors, elders, right? So BFNM is the driver of that threshold when it comes to reporting. And like I said, these are recorded on church tracking sheets or via computer software, kind of like church membership roles in the States, right? So they're tracking how many are attending, how many are baptized, when they're baptized, you know, what people groups they're from, how's that church doing the the five functions we always talk about, evangelism, discipleship, service, worship, fellowship, who's taking the Lord's Supper, who's giving, all that stuff's recorded, and that helps the team say this group has crossed that threshold. That said, the IMB also has the what we call the 12 healthy characteristics of a church, and that's defined in foundations. That actually pushes it beyond the BF&M definition, right? So the first threshold is that BF&M definition. The foundation's 12 characteristics are the things that our field teams then help those churches move toward. I mean, if you think about it, even in the U.S., not every church if you read foundations, is necessarily always doing those 12 healthy, healthy characteristics. Some churches are not maybe as involved in the Great Commission as they should be, right? And so for, for more health, they should be more involved. They should be more engaged overseas, that type of thing. And so 
but they're still churches, right? And so that BF&M definition is the driver. And then basically the foundations helps that coaching process. So I think that answers the first one of your questions, kind of a bit on some of that, that church number. But then you also asked a question about, you know, South Asia particularly and the are they employing different strategies? Are they counting differently? Are they how they're relying on national partners? So yeah, let me address that one. I really believe that this is truly a case of God's timing for South Asia and the Holy Spirit at work there in mighty ways. And let me unpack that a little bit. The strategies, the counting, and the process around those six components that IMB talks about in the missionary task, that's the entry, evangelism, discipleship, church formation, leadership development, and that exit or entrusting to partnership, they really are the mostly the same across the globe. Also, in terms of direct faithfulness activities done by the missionaries, we really don't see one affinity's personnel more or less active in faithfulness than the others. So I think it's really more about how many additional close partners are also laboring. In terms of the counting, like I said, that the churches are, are not counted and they may have been groups for many years until they meet those characteristics of BFNM. All of our affinities lean on national partners heavily. Some just have providentially more than others at this particular juncture. And it might be in some places they've exited some of those partnering relationships towards autonomy, which is, you know, what we want. We want associations of Baptists all over the world, right? With the same kind of level of autonomy that, that we enjoy here in the U.S. So a few things, I guess, to say on that. So currently in South Asia, God has provided longevity for a number of units, really in some ways miraculously, to develop many partners. And also just this uh, really incredible openness to the gospel that has been really strong the last 15 to 20 years. And the result has been just a large additional amount of laborers in close partnership with IMB personnel, sharing that load of EV and discipleship. And then two other things on the South Asia side, because there is something a little unique, and I, I did want to say that South Asia was one of the initial pioneers, and it's really being kind of adopted org-wide, of that church health tracking software. And that allowed the recording of the precise locations of all the groups and churches, as well as, as an easy ability to see how are they progressing from group to church. And so kind of having that extra data helps their teams be more confident that health where it is health-wise, as well as really keeping a solid track on attendance, how are baptisms growing year by year. So that software has been, has been helpful. And then I think finally, when it comes to uh, faithfulness-related numbers on South Asia side of things, you can see in the annual report that South Asia personnel and their partners had 66.4% of the pastoral training compared to our other affinities and 92.4% of all the formal and informal theoed, theological education done globally. So there's a correlation obviously between, you're not gonna be doing that amount of theological and pastoral education if you don't have churches that have pastors that need pastoral and theological education. Now, if we didn't, if those numbers were super low, like if that was reversed and you had a church high number, you'd be like, oh, no, let's wait a minute. But the fact that that those numbers are in correspondence, it's the same thing we look at scripture distribution. When there has been like some sort of awakening from the Lord somewhere globally, we can track stats from Bible Society, you know, 
scripture use just goes way up and the number of Bibles our personnel hand out and use and give to leaders goes way up, right? So you can look at actual Bible sales or distribution too. So there, there's factors that help you have some confidence. All right. Another question I had was, you know, kind of on the flip side. So obviously one affinity that seemed to be accounting for the bulk of churches planted globally. Well, then you you kind of wonder, OK, what about the other eight affinities with a combined makeup of it seems like over 3000 missionaries planted a combined 608 churches? So how do you explain the discrepancy there between South Asia and the number of churches they planted? with the other eight affinities and the number of churches they planted? I kind of hit on it some in the previous answer, but for this particular one, let me just say a few things. I mentioned already, it's a bit of an unhealthy practice to compare fruitfulness metrics between affinities. So that would be like, even in the United States, hey, this church for some reason has grown to 3,000 and this church has only grown to 100. That doesn't necessarily help anyone per se, unless somebody says, you know, hey, that growth, was it caused by God or did that individual do something different? You know, maybe there's some things you can glean, but I would say, let's look at faithfulness metrics, such as say evangelism. So if you take the faithfulness metrics, say, let's just say gospel sharing, providing opportunity to respond and things like that. The other affinity personnel and their partners represented 44% of all the metrics. And that difference really is just accounted for by the sheer number of close partners that are laboring alongside South Asia. So as I mentioned before, some affinities are in seasons where they've exited a partnership and they don't count previous partners' faithfulness numbers or their fruit. So in places like the Americas many times and in Africa and some parts of East Asia and stuff, where the Lord previously has actually, times when South Asia would have had numbers like we're seeing the other affinities, these other affinities have had numbers that people would be saying, why is there such a large thing? because the Lord was doing something there, those places have moved kind of to a different phase, a more of a mentoring phase. To some degree, I would actually argue it's a bit unfair. It hurts somewhat of our IMB personnel in those other affinities when we make comparisons on fruitfulness. As I mentioned before, we've got some personnel in places that have labored alone for eight years to see a single believer. They do a ton of EV, but they're doing it solo. And then there's places like South Asia, and really there's a history of missionaries laboring their entire lives in South Asia to see a single believer in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So why did God suddenly make hearts receptive in the early 2000s among South Asian Hindus? I have no idea. I mean, a prayer obviously had, had a part, something to do with it, but I know this for sure. If God opens a door, we need to follow Blackaby's advice, ride that wave, right, with God if he opens that door. And then the final thing I guess I'd say on this is we talk a bit about these numbers in South Asia as if that's exceptional and not, and maybe beyond what God would do or has done in history at different times and in different places. Let's use baptism as an example. In South Asia, 76,904 baptisms reported in South Asia. The thing is, it's, this was in 2020, out of 1.8 billion South Asian people. Those baptisms are among 440 different people groups. They're spread all over the entire region. So I just, I did a little math on this. It would be the equivalent of the SBC reporting 14,000 baptisms of the U.S. population in 2020. If you think, you know, in the, the geographic area, say the size of the United States or whatever, but we have a population of, you know, 360 roughly million, right? We're talking 1.8 billion. Let's just jump that down to say Richmond, Virginia. We have a population of 1.3 million. 
Percentage-wise, that's 54 baptisms in Richmond in 2020. Most of us would be asking, why were there not more than 54 baptisms in all of Richmond in 2020? As opposed to, why were there so many? Why is that number so high? A lot of the reason for IMB, I think you know this, like is extremely committed to getting to those least reached peoples. So when we have equipped partners in places, we go to the least reached. And so a lot of times we're, our personnel are laboring for years in those really tough places, praying for and hoping for that type of openness to the gospel and trying to get just that one person to come to faith. So anyway, God causes the growth, I think at the end of the day. So one more question related to the 2020 report. And that's really just about the discrepancy that often exists. If, if you can, you know, people can access other reports from previous years and you can kind of see that this is somewhat common, but the discrepancy between new believers, which was 144,000 roughly, and baptisms, which was 86,000 roughly. Why is there often a large gap between new believers and baptism? That gap between believer and baptism has basically been worldwide issue since the beginning of missions. It is the difference between the, yes, I'll follow Jesus, I'll pray the prayer, I'll profess the faith, and the, I have actually counted the cost, and I'm going to outwardly identify with Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. In the U.S., we generally equate the verbal with the conversion and the baptism it means something, but I don't think it means the same thing as it does overseas. That ordinance right there, that baptism ordinance in most of the world is where the rubber meets the road. That individual's got to count the cost before they get baptized. A great example, my language helper, very first term in Asia. I was told he was a believer. He's going to help me learn my language. I'm learning language. I'm asking him as I'm learning language, when have you been baptized? He hadn't been. He's been a believer for three years. I push him to get baptized. I start walking through passages with him as I'm learning language for weeks. He finally just says he's not going to do it because he's getting his MBA and his parents would stop paying for it if he became a real Christian. I would argue that guy's not saved, right? He's counted the cost and he wasn't really sincere in his profession of faith to the point of obedience in baptism. And so that's why many of our teams actually, it's kind of hit or miss. Some of our teams don't feel comfortable in some of their contexts reporting even someone said yes until they've been baptized. So sometimes we'll, we'll get a report, those two numbers will match. They probably had more people say yes, but they won't, they won't match them. Many of our teams, though, are going to record the yes, but they're going to record the baptism, and there's going to be a difference because in, in most of the places, in many contexts, it's when that person goes in the water that the whole village finds out or the whole tribe finds out. And that person has basically put their lives on the line to do that. So that, that's the main discrepancy, I think. I don't think that's going to go away. I mean, discipleship, right? Even in church history, I think that's why there was all that emphasis on catechism type stuff and making sure people understood what they were doing. We still do that. That's where that discrepancy comes in. Wilson, this has been really, really helpful. Thankful for your time. I have one last question for you. What is one thing you want to say to Southern Baptist pastors and missionaries who might be listening to this conversation? Well, I'm going to give you two in typical Baptist fashion. So the first thing I would say is pastors, be faithful. Be encouraged. 
hopefully on what you've heard, God is still at work and he is working through you. He's working through your church members. Be asking the Lord urgently and passionately for revival and for awakening across the globe. He's demonstrated through church history again and again in different regions across the world at different times that he does this. So ask him to do it again in the area that God has you working in and then labor diligently and trust his timing again for that harvest. So that would be the first. And then the second, which is a bit of a shameless plug, so I apologize in advance, but um, IMB basically has started a new Twitter cast and I'm, I'm the host. And so I kind of wanted to let our Southern Baptist pastors and missionaries know about this new Twitter cast. It's called 57 Seconds. They're just one minute videos. They come out weekly. They're designed for the busy pastor to get a quick shot of missiology. And every week they're going to have slides and graphics and charts and tables for download that pastors can use to preach and teach and, and hopefully help them. So the first two episodes are already live on Twitter at IMB's Twitter feed. You can also get them at the website, imb.org slash 57 seconds, and there'll be a new one every Thursday. So those are my two things. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Wilson today. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.